Welcome to episode 7, where William Gates's mother is revealed to be an ogre who wants to cook up Chenille's children. Later on, John hears still more about Jock, the masterful thief. Then John, Route Hog, and Council Register crawl into their sleeping bags for the night. In one's time, you'll meet John Spellman. Oh, um, where were we? Oh, yeah, Jock was going to steal the sheet out from under the wife. John's friend, Council Register. Well, so four years after that, William Randall Gates' father died. And Route Hog. Yeah, well, I was telling our friend John here about Jock and the old rich man. So, on their wedding night, William Randall Gates and the sleeping beautiful lady in the woods had very little sleep. I mean, Chenille, of course, she had no need of it, having slept for a hundred years, and William Randall was very much awake and, you know, so forth. But that next morning, he had to leave her to return home to let his parents know that he was alive and safe. And once home, he told his mom and dad that he had been hunting and he'd lost his way in the woods and that he had spent the night in the cottage of a goat herder who gave him a dinner of cheese and brown bread. Now, William Randall's father believed that, but his mother did not, particularly since for the next two years, he often went hunting almost every day, and he came home very late, if at all. So Mama began to suspect that her boy was involved with a woman, which, of course, he was. But what she did not know was that young Master Gates had married the woman and become the father of two children, a girl named Mead and a boy named Buck. Now, William Randall's mom several times questioned her son about what might be going on, and she even warned him that it was his solemn duty to level with her. But he never dared to completely trust her with his secret because he was afraid of her, don't you know? Because though he loved her, he knew her to be descended from a clan of ogres, and he believed his father would never have married her, actually, had it not been for her vast wealth. William Randall had even heard it whispered about the county that his mama still had ogreish tendencies and that when sometimes she saw little children passing by, she could hardly keep from just eating them, devouring them right there on the spot. And so William Randall never could bring himself to tell his mother of his wife and his children. But four years afterward, William Randall's daddy died, and when William Randall saw himself as the lord and master of the Gates family's enormous business interests, as well as its palatial state, he dared throw caution to the winds, and he openly declared his marriage, and he went in happiness and great ceremony to conduct his bride home. William Randall Gates and Shawneel made a magnificent entry into the family estate riding on a gold-plated wagon with her two children between them. And to William Randall's great joy, his mother welcomed his wife and children and made no attempt to eat either meat or buck. Then once time, 
little over a year later, William Randall had to go away on an extended business trip, but he felt quite comfortable by now leaving the government of the estate and the business to his mother, who swore to take good care of his wife and children and protect them from all harm. But no sooner had William Randall left than his mother had Chenille taken away to one of the family's country houses in the woods so that she might with ease satisfy her unnatural longings for Chenille's children. The next day, she said to her chef, Chef, I want to eat little mead tonight for supper. Oh, madam, cried the chef. I will have it so, replied the ogre, and I will eat her with hominy grits and fried potatoes. And the chef, knowing very well that he must not play tricks with ogresses, took his butcher knife and went up into Little Mead's room. She was then four years old and ran up to him, jumping and laughing. Oh, she loved to laugh, to hug him around the neck and, and ask him for some sweet cakes. And at that, the chef began to weep, and the knife fell out of his hands, and he went into the backyard and killed a little lamb and dressed it with such good side dishes that the ogre said she had never eaten any child so good in her life. And in the meantime, the chef had sneaked Little Mead to his own house, and he and his wife hid the girl in the dwelling they occupied there at the south end of the estate. But less than a week passed before the ogre said to the chef, For supper tonight, I believe I will have Buck to eat. And the chef went to find little Buck, saw him wrestling with old Blue and took him up in his arms and carried him to his wife, and they hid him also in their house. And then in place of little Buck, the chef cooked up a young goat, very tender, which the ogress scarfed right down. Everything then went well for the chef until one evening the ogress said to him, All right, I can deny myself no longer. Tonight I will eat chenille with the same grits and potatoes I had with her children. Go, fetch her back from the country house. And the poor man figured his goose was now cooked. Chenille was nearly 30, not counting the hundred years she'd been asleep. How could he find an animal that would resemble her flesh? He decided he must save his own life by cutting Chenille's throat. So he went to her house, found her with his knife in his hand, and he told her, with a great deal of respect, the story of her mother-in-law's appetite. Oh, if my children are gone, said Chenille, just do it. And she stuck out her neck. Kill me now so I can go and see my children, my poor children whom I so much loved. Oh, no, no, madam, cried the chef, all in tears. You will not die, and you will see your children again. They are alive. Come home with me to my little house where I've hidden buck and mead, and we'll figure out a way to trick your hideous mother-in-law. And he took Chenille back to his house and left her to hug her children and cry along with them. And he went and killed and dressed a little pet deer, which the ogress had for supper and swallowed down with the same appetite as if it had been Chenille. 
and the evil ogress, now delighted with her own cruelty, began to work on a long, complicated story to tell her son at his return about how wild wolves had attacked and eaten up his wife and two children. But then one evening, as the wicked ogress was rambling around about the courts and yards of her estate, she smelled fresh child meat, and she heard in a small house little Buck crying, for his mama was going to spank him because he had been naughty. And then she also heard at the same time little Mead begging pardon for her brother. And the ogress became near crazy with fury that she had been so deceived, and she ordered with a most horrible voice which made everybody tremble. She ordered that her security staff should at first break of day bring into the middle of the great courtyard a large tub filled with venomous toads, snakes, and all sorts of deadly lizards and serpents, and into that tub should be thrown Chenille and her children, as well as the chef and his wife, all with their hands tied behind their backs. And at dawn they were all brought outside, and the executioners were just going to throw them into the slimy tub of slithering vipers when William Randall Gates returned home unexpectedly, riding into the courtyard, and he asked with the utmost astonishment the meaning of this horrible spectacle. He demanded to know who was responsible, and in silence everyone pointed at the ogress, and she all enraged to see what had happened, threw herself head foremost into the tub and was bitten more than 100 times and destroyed. William Randall could not but be very sorry, for she was his mama, but he comforted himself with his beautiful wife and his pretty children, and they all, everybody this time, lived happy till ever after in that big old house. So, counsel said, after he'd finished his story, that's what I've been up to. Hearing that story, what you all been doing? Well, said Radhog, I was telling our friend here, John, the smell man, about Jock and the old rich man. Oh, yeah, said counsel, now, yeah. And that happened, that happened, you know, in that big house that's almost right here. That same one where... I already told him that part. Oh, okay. Okay, Hog, so where are you with Jock and Rich? Oh, where were we? Uh, John. Uh, John, uh, where were we? Well, I had to think for a moment. And I said, um, uh, I remember Jock. Jock was going to steal the sheet out from under the wife and the old fellow was sitting up in bed next to her while she was sleeping, and he had a gun. Right, said Hogg, old double-barreled shotgun. Counsel lay back on his elbows to listen. I threw some more wood on the fire, and Rout Hogg went back to his story. So, mean old Rich is set up to shoot Jock, the masterful thief. But meantime, see, Jock was being careful making his own plans. 
He figures the old man is going to try to knock him off and get everything back, so he's got to get ready for his best thieving yet. He gets a sheep bladder and fills it full of pig's blood, and then he goes over to the graveyard and he digs up some miserable sinner that had been buried the day before, some fellow about his own wiry size and weight, and then Jock goes and he cuts a long, straight wooden pole and straps the dead man to one end of it with the pole up, running up behind the fellow's back under his shirt. And Jock puts his own hat up on the guy's head. And then just after midnight, Jock takes the whole kit caboodle up to the big house and starts hoisting his puppet thief up toward the window in Rich's bedroom, sliding him up the outside wall of the house. Old man Rich, who fallen asleep, actually, sitting up on his bed with that gun. He wakes up when he hears the sneaky sliding sound, gets out of bed and creeps to the door and listens. Decides Jock must be coming up the side of the house on a ladder or something. So he gets a good position between the bed and the window, and he waits. Jock slowly slides the dead man up until just his hat appears above the windowsill, and then he lets the dead man drop back down a bit. Rich now lifts his shotgun and gets ready. Jock raises the big puppet man again, this time so his whole head shows, quickly, with the moonlight behind it, and Rich starts to squeeze the trigger when the thief disappears again. But now Rich is ready for the third time. The head pokes up, blam, blam, he cuts loose with both barrels, and Jock lets go the pole, and the dead man flops down to the ground. Old woman Rich wakes up and starts screaming. Old man Rich is hollering, oh, I got him, I think I hit him. I didn't want to hit him, too messy. Just wanted to scare him, got to go check him. She keeps screaming, he runs downstairs, heading for the outside. Jock quickly pulls the pole loose from the now doubly dead corpse, and since both Rich's shots completely missed, takes the bladder full of pig's blood and puddles it all over the fellow's face and then hides himself in the bushes there. And Rich comes running out to where the body's laying beside the house, bends down over him and starts blubbering. Oh, Jock's dead. Look at him. Look at him. Can't hardly recognize him. Poor me. Jock was a rotten, no-good, lazy thief and liar. But I wish I hadn't shot his face off. People is going to find out about this, and the sheriff is going to come and get me, and I'm going to lose everything I might have had and die. I'll be poor and alone in the state prison. Oh, poor me, poor me. Got to hide dead jock. Got to dig a hole in the garden and drop him in it. Got to hurry. Rich drags the body off about 20 feet away under some trees and runs off to get a shovel. Jock whips over to the door that Rich came out of, takes off his shoes, and runs up the stairs fast and quiet. It's real dark, but Jock could just see that old lady Rich is sitting in the middle of the bed, snuffling and twisting the bed sheet back and forth in her hands. Jock walks into the room over to the wash basin and starts pouring water on his hands. Then the old lady cries louder, and Jock disguises his voice like the old man's and says, Oh, hush up, woman, hush up. Don't be scared. We just got to move fast. Jock is dead and he's all bloody. So as soon as I can get this blood off my hands, you give me that bed sheet you got. I'll wrap Jock up in it and haul him off and bury him. Hurry, hurry. We don't want the sheriff out here, do we? Oh, she hands him the bed sheet and Jock turns to leave and then comes back to the bedside. 
Oh my gosh, woman, there's blood on this sheet now, and you got blood stains on that nightgown of yours, too. I must not have washed my hands well enough. Give me the other bed sheet and your nightgown as well, and I'll bury them with the body. What? You'll bury him deep? I don't want my nighty found in a grave of some dead man. Oh, don't worry, woman. That's not what I want either. And she gives him her nightgown and the other sheet. And Jock, still barefoot, runs out of the dark room, out of the house as fast as he can, this time by the front door. And no sooner has he left than old man Rich comes into the house through the back door and tromps upstairs and over to the wash basin. Woman, he says, woman, get me some more water and toss one of those bed sheets over here so I can clean my hands. I'm covered in blood. What? She says. Blood covered again? How'd you bury him so fast? Well, I dug quick. We don't want the sheriff nursing around here, do we? Now I dug a shallow grave and slipped him in there, and then I pulled branches and leaves and a bunch of stuff over it. No one will ever find Jock. We're rid of him. It all worked out for the best. Just toss me one of those bed sheets. We can hide it in the attic. You are crazy, old man. What are you talking about? I already gave you both bed sheets and my nighty, and you promised to bury them deep, and now they're lying in some shallow grave with that no-account jock and me without a clean stitch to put on this bed or on my body? What are you talking about, you crazy old woman? Just give me something to dry my hands. I told you I already give them to you once, and I don't have them to do it again. Oh, you gave them to me? Yeah. When? When you were up here the first time. What first time? What? What? When? It was less than two minutes ago, she says. I wasn't up here, old lady, I tell you. Well, somebody sure was. And by the time they finally figured it out, Jock had gotten the dead man dog up, cleaned up, and all the way back to his real grave. And the next morning, when old man Rich came down to Jock's place by the creek pool, the two sheets and the nightgown were fresh washed, and Jock was hanging them out on his clothesline to dry in the sun. Jock, says the beaten old man, don't be hanging that stuff up there. Those are my sheets. That is my wife's nightgown. Oh, no, says Jock. Those are my sheets. That's my nightgown. And that big old house you've been living in? By agreement, that's now my house. So you take me up there right now and you sign that deed over to me. And you and the old woman are going to live in this little house and you're going to work for me. So Jock got that big house and he found himself a wife that appreciated his way of doing business. And they and their son lived there real happy for a lot of years. And counsel now chimed in. Yeah, but then, once time, late in their lives, Jock and his wife mysteriously drowned in the creek pool. And their son came into ownership of the house, added rooms onto it, and developed it into a fine and well-known boarding house that was so popular that the railroad ran a line almost up to it. Oh, I asked, so so that's what's lying in ruins out there, the, the boarding house. No, said counsel. 
That's the ruins of an old hotel. See, Jock's granddaughter inherited that boarding house, and she and her husband developed it into one of the finest hotels in the U.S. of A. Had 63 guest rooms, the best kitchen in 10 states, just about the finest service in America. Had a grand first-floor ballroom where 200 couples could dance all at the same time. Had a full-time professional string band, and people would come from all over everywhere to dine and dance at the Blue Springs Hotel. Well, I said, so, so what drove it out of business? I mean, how did it die? Oh, Interstate passed it by, huh? What Interstate, Smellman? It was long before any Interstate. No, that place was closed up on a spring day less than 12 hours after Jock's granddaughter's family faced a terrible tragedy. Oh, what happened to them, I said. What killed them? Who who killed them? What makes you think somebody died, said counsel? Not them, anyway. Well, they didn't die that way. Hey, said Radog, hey, we got to bunk down. It's way past dark. We put the last of the wood on the fire. I brushed my teeth, and the three of us set up sleeping areas near the flames. We needed to be close together, said counsel, while he told us about the big house that became a hotel. And we would sleep out on the ground, because counsel did not believe in tents. If the weather got bad, he said, you just go under the edge of a large rock, or you find shelter under a fallen tree, or maybe you get a little wet. Uh, We all lay on our sides, facing the fire, our heads tilted up on our hands and elbows, just a few feet apart. And counsel told us about the tragedy at the Blue Springs Hotel.